Phil Ebert, founder of Ebert Honey, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. There are a few legends uh, in, <laughs> in every field, and we would love to brag and say that we have one of them in our founder with Prairie. Yep, He's been absolutely. in it since the mid-80s. Yep. Uh, but we have another one across the table from us, but this one's not Prairie, a legend of bees. I was in Des Moines a few months ago, and uh, there was a gentleman who kept bees, just a small, you know, maybe eight hives, ten hives. And he was saying that uh, he looked up to and got all his information from the famous Ebert. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have Phil Ebert with us. Thanks for coming, Phil. Glad to be here. Man. You know, Nick, when you said we had a legend in our own fields, we kind of really have another one, too, in Phil, because we have some of Phil's bee boxes in our fields. Yes, that is true. The The bees on our farm help make Ebert honey. And so I, I like to take credit when I see someone eating Ebert honey. I'm like, you know, there's like a 0.02% chance that that's from <laughs> our farm. <laughs> I actually eat Ebert honey every single day. I put it on my breakfast, even if, so my standard breakfast, in a perfect world, we have a little bit of raisin bran. You know, I go and get the measuring scoop out. I know you think I'm crazy for that, Nick. Yeah, My four scoops of uh, raisin bran. Then I uh, put a hunk of peanut butter on there for some protein. Then I uh, get some frozen fruit to throw it on there. And uh, which is a good little hack when it's you got to work in the dog days of summer. That that frozen fruit just starts you off right, nice and cold. But then I go to the cabinet and grab a big bottle of Ebert's honey. And I, I got to be honest, Phil. I think I go through. I bet our family goes through a half gallon of honey a month because we. Uh, I'm not the only one in the house that eats all that honey. There's sure, everybody else. Sure, does, but I eat the I eat the majority of it probably. But but uh, every day start out right with some good Ebert honey. And I think of that 0.02% chance that it might come from the very fields where I'm swinging a hoe or. Uh, harvesting some seed or something like that. Well, Phil was gracious, and today he brought us some Ebert honey. And by us, I mean me. He brought me four bottles of oh, Ebert honey. Oh, uh, no, sir. <laughs> my wife and I have this rule of the dibs, and we honor it no matter what. Even if we're at the fanciest restaurant ever, and she gets one bite of a dessert, and it costs $30. If I call dibs, I get it. Uh, and then I usually show her mercy and give it to her. And then when she calls That's dibs, a terrible she eats rule. it. It's a, it's, a, it's a great rule. It's, yeah, it's, Sounds uh, like that could lead to a lot of strife. Yeah. <laughs> We're not doing great, guys. No, no I'm totally kidding. Um, but let's jump into it. Phil's been doing this. He just let us know since 1980. He was six years old. Oh, uh, he started his first PM. What, what made you want to uh, get your first hive? It was entirely by accident. I had a brother-in-law that used to work for Marquette's. They were a Nebraska beekeeping family. Okay. And he was the kind of guy that would come and show you bee movies whether you wanted to watch them or not. <laughs> I was mildly interested. So I took an adult education course in beekeeping at the local high school. We lived in near Fairfield at the time. And I wasn't even going to get any bees. But the guy that taught the course said, you got to have bees. I'll give you some. And... He never bought any queens. He let the bees draw their own. So he brought me, I think, four frames of brood. They wouldn't draw a queen. He brought me more frames of brood. They still wouldn't draw a queen. <laughs> and this hardly... So what happens to a hive if it doesn't uh, draw a queen? They perish. Oh. 
the worker the workers can lay eggs, but they can only lay sterile eggs, which okay. produce only male bees, which are the drones. And they don't do any work; they just hang around. <laughs> their their sole job is to be available to mate with a queen. Okay. So if you get a hive full of drones, it's gonna die. So you're saying males are almost useless in a bee colony? <laughs> almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> and while they don't have to do any work, when the fall comes and winter's coming on, they get kicked out of the hive. Huh. So, and then when it comes around next spring and the bees think they might need more drones, then they'll start laying, the queen will start laying drone eggs. But uh, uh, they're pretty unique. And if you go in a hive around 11 o'clock in the morning, these drones will quite often be gathered up down at the bottom of the box, kind of grooming themselves, like getting ready to go on a date. (laughs) <laughs> and then they fly off to these drone congregation areas. And I'm not real sure how they locate these things. But anyway, the queens can find them. So the drones get up there and they fly around in this drone congregation area. And if there's a queen that needs mating, she flies off to the same area. How they find each other, I have no idea. But wow. they do. And then that queen mates in the air. The drones take off after her, and the fastest drones mate with the queen. And she will mate with <laughs> anywhere from 8 to 20 drones. Wow. She, she ejects quite a bit of the sperm that she takes in so that in the end she has a mix of the sperm from a lot of drones. So it's kind of okay. a genetic diversity thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's not unusual to see different colored bees in the same hives if you've got a drones of different characteristics that are up there but when that drone mates that's the end of him he can't uncouple so when he pulls away the back end of his abdomen comes off and he'll die in a few hours similar to like if a bee stings you and then right right that stinger stays in but then the next drone to mount her will remove the remaining parts and mate and then when she's finished she'll come back to the hive so off of one of those trips those excapades for lack of a better term uh and the queen comes back how many eggs does she lay off of uh off of that i don't know it it depends how long she lives now a good queen can lay up to 1800 eggs a day if she has a big enough supporting cast i mean you have to have worker bees in there uh, to take care of the developing brood. So she needs a good population in there to be able to lay that many. And the question used to be, how many years will a queen live? Mm-hmm. Now you just hope they make it through the season. A lot of them don't. Why? I was, I was going to ask you about that. That I, I saw in a documentary, I think it's called Pollinators. Uh, if you're listening in, you want to see a really good documentary that gives you a little bit of an inside view of uh, what goes on, uh, you know, for somebody who's keeping bees. Are you um, the guy that'll show someone a bee movie without telling me? <laughs> you posted that meme on Instagram the other day, and my sister called me out on it. I saw that. She tagged the, the meme for, for anyone who's not. I'll show it on YouTube. But for anyone who's listening, it was basically a guy being thrown through a window, and it said, my kidnapper's returning me after the, I just talked to them about wildflowers for two hours <laughs> that is definitely me uh but uh this film's called pollinators on amazon prime and uh they talk about that exact problem that's kind of a new probably the biggest hurdle for beekeepers is queen death queen mortality 
And there's a whole side of keeping bees now where you're constantly having to purchase new queens. Why? To, to keep your hives going. It all gets back to chemicals. Ah. And the other thing we we see all the time now is these queens will fail and the bees don't try to requeen them. They're reading the pheromones wrong. These queens have odors called pheromones. Mm -hmm. And when those are strong, the workers in the hive know things are right. But when they, they, they weaken and that queen starts to slow down her egg-laying process, uh, in years past, they would almost always produce a new queen. Hmm. And they can, they can pr produce a queen from any larva. Uh, it's the way they feed them that makes them turn into a queen. Okay. And uh, I don't know. I don't have the answers to all this stuff. Yeah, sure. But beekeepers can be part of the problem. Our biggest problem is varroa mites, and what I refer to as the varroa mite virus complex. And that's what kills these bees. Is that the mite? You were saying that you need to, you need to treat your bees for mites. Is that what you were talking yeah, about? Yeah, and you have to control that mite load. And these viruses have always been in these colonies. But in the past, like 30 years ago, bee got sick, it'd fly off and die away from home so it didn't infect its neighbors. Well, now these viruses have become tremendously efficient at being transmitted through these varroa mites. And these varroa mites feed off the bees. <clears throat> they develop on the larva. And so the female mite enters the cell just before it's capped. Okay, and let me say, bees are in the butterfly family and they got the same cycle. Egg larva pupa. Mm. So when the larva has that fill about, or that cell about half filled, the bees put extra food in there and cap it. Well, that female mite is already in there. So she feeds off the developing larva. So when that larva matures into a bee, it's already damaged. So then this mite emerge, emerges from the cell with the bee. And it will probably move to another bee and ride that bee for three or four days before it goes back into the cell to reproduce. So this is a pest that has the, the ability to essentially double its population every two and a half weeks. Wow. So even if you start out with a 1% load in the spring, you know, every two and a half weeks, after a while, you've got, what, 6, 8, 10% by the time you get into the fall. That's a death wish for these bees. Mm. And then because these viruses have become so efficient at being transmitted through these mites, because when the, the mite is riding the bee, it will ride on the lower side of the abdomen, and it will bite in there, and it will open a wound that never closes. And it feeds off what we call the fat body of the bee, which is the nutrient portion. Okay. And so this all goes to weaken these bees and make them successful, susceptible to viruses which are being transmitted through these mites. So the upshot of this is the bees cannot handle the mite load they used to. Hmm. So Dennis Van Ingelsdorp told me years ago that if that mite load gets over 3%, they're dead. They just don't know it yet. And I didn't believe him. I thought 4 5 6%, we can handle that. Well, it turns out he's right. So we have had to increase the, the frequency of these mite treatments. And when I say beekeepers are part of the problem, they've been putting chemicals in there to kill these mites. And so these build up over time in the wax. Had some of my wax tested a few years ago. There was 23 different pesticides in it. Mm. One of them was atrazine. How many years has it been since oh, we used atrazine? Really? 
You know, and there's been lawsuits over that, contaminating water supplies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we have tried to get away from using these hard chemicals. Uh, and, of course, everybody was looking for a silver bullet in the beginning. So we have gone to more benign treatments. Uh, we're experimenting with what they call extended-release oxalic acid. You mix the acid with glycerin and soak it into these Oh, they look like little sponges, little thin little sponges, or maybe a washcloth thing. And uh, they're effective on some level. But this is something that's not, you know, a nasty chemical. Mm-hmm. And oxalic acid occurs naturally in honey, so we're not polluting anything in there. But if you're using Kumafos or what's the other one? There's some pyrethroids that go in there. And tactic, of course, has been the big one that guys have been using for 30 years. So this is, they're using chemicals to spray the mites, but the buildup of those chemicals are starting to hurt the bees as well? Well, and they're building resistance. Oh. Uh, They've been using tactic so long that there are reports of resistance. And we have used it from time to time. Because it gets to be the point, you got to do something or you lose your livelihood. Mm -hmm. Right. But we're constantly making adjustments, and some of these adjustments work, and some of them don't. Yeah. And when we started keeping bees in 1980, if you lost 5% through the winter, or even 10%, you'd had a horrible winter. Well, now, if, if we get through a year and lose 30%, we think we've done well. Wow. And because of the queen failure, and we're constantly requeeting these colonies through the summer. Yeah. <clears throat> but even so... We're probably going to lose 10% of these colonies to queen loss going through the summer. So do you think not only the pesticide or the, I guess, I don't know, uh, some sort of chemicals that you're putting on the mites, do you think that um, insecticides they're spraying on like corn and beans, does that heavily affect the... It's a player in the game. Okay. And these seed treatments, the neonics, they scare me to death. Hmm. Is it worse than having aerial spray? I don't know. But the thing is, only about, I think, something like 30% of that neonic that's coated on the seed is absorbed by the plant. The rest of it stays in the ground. The half-life of that is years. We're putting more and more of it on the ground every year. So this stuff has got to be building up, and it's water-soluble. It's everywhere. What is the effect of this on fish and birds and other wildlife? And every dandelion growing alongside the road is going to have that stuff in it. It's unavoidable. And I've been to a couple bear meetings. Butter would melt in their mouth. And they've got a bee guy that works for them that swears this stuff is safe. But I, I don't know. There's, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. And there have been German studies that have found Roundup in the human bloodstream. So um, I, I, I don't know what the answer to all this is. But we got some serious environmental problems out there, and the bees are like the canary in the coal mine. Hmm. And it's getting harder and harder to keep them alive. And I'm I'm not against chemicals, totally against chemicals, but we need to be a lot smarter about how we use that stuff. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of just a, you know, when, when you look at how these problems are solved, that's exactly what it is. There's a problem. Okay, what can we do to fix this problem? Oh, we found a way to fix this problem. We're going to keep doing this so that we don't have to encounter that problem again. And that's really how we've gotten to where we are with agriculture. You know, it's it's really hard when you got a bunch of weeds in your field. Okay, we're going to try this method. Well, that, you know, 
the weeds build up tolerance. Okay, then we need to try this, and then we need to try this. Oh, the corn gets too tall. I can't get a cultivator through it, or I can't go in and spray it. Oh, well, what if we have an airplane fly over it or a helicopter? And it's just a system of solving the next problem, which when I think of it that way, that helps me keep from getting so frustrated because they're trying to they're trying to make a go at they're trying to make a living but the other side of it is exactly what phil's saying we got to think about how we're doing this it needs to be more calculated it needs to be uh more carefully done and and right now you know you, you i remember we were going up to do our huge plant up in tama and uh we passed uh you know somebody who was contracted to drive down the highway on the shoulder have a huge sprayer tank of uh, pesticide on the the back of their trailer and they were just spraying everything in the ditch for miles and that's not really calculated that's not really precise that's erring on the side of too much not erring on the side of being cautious and sparing and you know what i mean and and i think that's where we got to get because like phil said what is what is the long-term effect we don't know a lot of this stuff is new you know do you think if if bees were eradicated next year not a single bee there are other pollinators but no bees do you think humans would adapt well enough or i some i heard someone say that they didn't think humans would survive if bees were eradicated well i would say that's extreme but it wouldn't be nice yeah uh there wouldn't be very many almonds yeah. And yeah. somebody showed me, Whole Foods did this thing one time, and it showed their produce section. And then it says, here's what it would look like with no bees. You know, and about half of it was wow. empty. So they always say every every third bite of food is right, the result yep. of bee pollination. That may be an overstatement, but bees are extremely important. And over the years, they've been the poor stepchild of agriculture hmm. yeah. and um you know they want the bees in there for pollination but then ah, get them out we got to spray tomorrow oh yeah. yeah and there's all kinds of horror stories we have not had but I, there was one spraying incident and i commented on it to the landowner one time and he said well there's risk in everything then his wife got wind of that, and she went over and raised hell with the sprayers. Huh. So most of the places where we have bees, and I commented before we started that we're in business through the grace of other people that let us mm-hmm. put bees on their ground. Right. And most of them are very conscious of what goes on. And these uh, there's not as much aerial spraying as there used to be, but there was these agritech guys down at, Indianola, who who really watched out for me. Hmm. And I had this yard one time where this guy, his mother called me and says, Phil, I think we got a problem. My son's going to spray this field with an airplane tomorrow. And my my bees were right in the middle of it. The site, it had been alfalfa when we put them in there. And then they converted it to beans. And this was back in the days when I didn't have a lot of options of places to put bees. Mm -hmm. So I called these guys. And they refused to spray it, which, of course, got me in big trouble with the guy who was farming the ground because he had to go in there and spray it on the ground. And ground spray is not that bad an issue, you know, if the bees are at home. So all I want him to do is spray it in the ground. But anyway, 
bent out of shape and I, I in the end became bent out of shape also. And so long story short, we hauled the bees out of there at the end of that year. But that's the kind of stuff you run into. Yeah. But I know, uh, you know, they call us from the co-op. And we do have a bee rule now where you're not supposed to spray within a mile of a bee yard uh, after 8 in the morning or before 6 in the evening. But this only applies to commercial applicators. If some guy's got his own spray rig, uh, it doesn't apply. But like I say, for spraying on the ground, um, I can I can usually live with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But uh, and, uh, another thing, another burr under my saddle that occurred to me while we were talking is these guys that mow the roadsides like it was their lawn. Yeah. There's a half a mile of white sweet clover growing along the road out here, which my bees are living on right now. Because hmm. yeah. your stuff isn't in bloom yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And I don't mind them mowing the shoulders. So that's kind of a safety issue. That's, that's a good thing. But my neighbor's a little older than I am, and what he can do is mow. So he mows the doggone ditch for about a half a mile. Well, yeah. And I don't have that many bees in yeah. my place, but he's a great guy. But I still find it somewhat galling. And at least, you know, at least wait till the sweet clover goes to seed if you want to mow the darn ditch. But I, I know they want the stuff to look good. But you know, my outfit or my outlook's entirely different. These weeds that bloom, they look good to me, and I need those because in some places at certain times of the year, that stuff growing along the roadside is all these bees have to work on. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. You know, you you see that where counties pay to mow the median. You know. Oh God, and, down there by Pella, it's all yeah. full of trefoil. I used to have a yard right there along the road, and it was just getting to bloom good. And they mowed that off, and I could have cried. Yeah, oh. yeah, they, and and look, if you're listening to this, might be a good thing to bring up to uh, your local officials. You know, your county board, conservation, or parks and rec, whoever's in charge, DOT, if it's a you know highway or something like that, and just ask them why do we do all this mowing you know we're wasting tax dollars on the equipment the, the man hours to get it mowed down and in the end it just hurts us anyways from a conservation standpoint because it takes away all those resources for for our pollinators so yeah i'm i'm right with you there on that and and even if you're in your own yard you know there's parts of your yard you really is it really better to be a you know a three inch yard as opposed to letting some of those flowering plants i mean i've seen out in our fields countless times bees on thistles you know these things that yes they're invasive but once again it goes back to our old conversation that nicholas and i have had a million times we would love to restore iowa to its total native you know virgin prairie state but things from an ecological standpoint have gotten so thrown out of whack that when we do have some newcomers come in that can maybe for a time serve a purpose why not let them serve that purpose if if possible and uh, in this case help pollinators so yeah here's a project we're going to be involved with Um, there's a guy at iowa state matt o'neill who is researching the effect of prairie strips and next they got funding for a project and uh, we're going to put some of our bees in these prairie strips, which is going to be about like putting bees on this place. You know, okay, it's yeah. later blooming stuff. And um, 
they're going to research what the benefit of this is and whether late season forage from these prairie strips benefits these bees. But again, no matter what we do, it doesn't matter what you do, if you do not control varroa mites adequately, the bees are going to die no matter what happens out there. Mm. Man. Well, you, you've talked about some of the woes of beekeeping, which there seem to be a lot of. It seems like your, your, your hallway for being able to work with bees is closing in on every side of you. But I, I am curious, what are, in your beekeeping career, whether it's seasonally or just a one-moment thing, what, what is some of the highest highs you've felt? What's been some of the best moments of your bee career? Getting to work with my family. Mm. That's priceless. And you're really hooked up with what's going on in nature. Mm. Um, my kids pretty much um, built this up when I was working somewhere else. And uh, they would come home from school trips and tell me what they'd seen um, blooming along the road. Who looks at stuff like that? Yeah. But um, my son Adam, when he was in high school, he was keen on bees, and he bought his first ones when he was 13. Wow. And 93 was when the mites really hit us big time. I think we had around 50 colonies of bees. And uh, going into the spring of 94, I don't know, we might have had three or four colonies left. Whoa. Wow. We didn't. I don't know much now, but I knew a lot less then as far as managing that stuff. So he, I didn't know what I was going to do because we had no money. Um, but anyway, he decided he was going to buy some bees, so he did. And then uh, he and one of my other boys took care of them that summer, and I was pretty much stayed out of it. God, they did great. And so then we kind of started the climb back. And then in um, 96, we put up a building and we made um, what I still think of as the leap to 100, which in uh, retrospect is not very many colonies, but it seemed big at the time. Mm -hmm. But uh, Adam did all this and then probably, I don't know, Suddenly he had 300, wow. and then it just kind of kept going. And hmm. we've been fortunate that opportunities have come up that we were able to take advantage of. And we really, in the early 90s, I, I didn't have a plan. We just responded to things that happened. And in the early 90s, beekeepers were going out of business right and left. And back in those days, every other farmstead had... Well, not that many, but there were a lot of farmsteads that had a few colonies of bees. You go to these farm sales, and this bee equipment would be stacked up there. It was a dollar a stack. Oh. And uh, I've always remembered going to Lowell Hupp's sale over in Harlan, who was a beekeeper who bit the bullet. And I thought I was bidding on stuff by the stack. And the auctioneer got all done and said, that row is yours, son. <laughs> it's a long row. 
But I was there with a huh. I had an S10 pickup with a trailer made out of a pickup box. But um, I had a cousin that lived in Harlan. So I, <laughs> I, I hauled all that stuff over to her yard and stacked it up. <laughs> <laughs> and it, uh, it, it took me several trips to get it home, and it was years before we got all that stuff <laughs> populated with bees. <laughs> but when we finally got it rolling, you know, that was, we basically had free equipment. Yeah, that's awesome. And that stuff caused an arm and a leg now. As you know, everything is going crazy mm -hmm. price-wise. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. So we had uh, resources to work with. And then, I don't know, things have happened along the way where we've acquired stuff and, one thing and another. So I think we're running probably around 1,800 colonies this year. Wow. I don't really know. That is a small operation in today's world. Hmm. But we've got multiple revenue streams where beekeeping is not our sole source of income. So we got a delivery route where we uh, have direct sales of honey to grocery stores. I think we service mm -hmm. about 70 stores. We buy and sell beeswax. I think we brokered around 30,000 pounds of wax last year. Wow. Uh, we have a plastic container distributorship, which is uh, headquartered in Mount Vernon. My son Adam lives in Mount Vernon now, and we've got another separate operation over there. We're under the same financial umbrella, but he, he runs on his own. Wow. And then he's got... Uh, so that's separate than the 1,800... Uh, no, that's part of the 1800. Of the We've got maybe seven or 800 here. Okay. But we do all the honey packing here. Okay. And we handle all the wax here. Yeah. So we've got plenty to do. And then I think he's got somewhere around a thousand over there. Could be more, could be less. We don't know. <laughs> you never got out of just They, they come and go all the time. Yeah. Oh, man. So there's constant turnover. So even in, But even in a good year, we're turning over 30, 40% of our bees. Yeah, cause I've I've seen, I've seen you all in High V, and if any of you all are not from Iowa or some surrounding states, that's a big deal. High V is is a lot of stores. I don't I don't know if it's second to any in terms of grocery stores in Iowa. Maybe Walmart, but uh, it's really a, a dominating grocery store here, and it's cool to see your your honey there. Uh, I always feel a little bit of connection to that honey, but uh, if you. It's not a small deal to get into like a corporate kind of. How did you convince them to take your honey? Begged them, <laughs> literally. <laughs> really? Oh, uh, we don't go through corporate. We could, but I don't have the bottling capacity to service two hundred and thirty some odd stores. Sure. Mm -hmm. So we go store to store, and I think we've got thirty five or forty now. Wow, that's great. Um, You're also but back in the too, day. Right? I, I remember now getting our first high V stores in 1989, and uh, local products weren't that big a deal in those days. Right. Yeah. And um, was it still cheaper is better back then? I'm sorry. Was it still kind of a cheaper is better feel back then? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, you had to be the low dollar guy to have them even look at you. Sure. And. Uh, I'm no salesman. My approach is basically, this is what I've got. Do you want any? <laughs> but fortunately for me, the product sold itself. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I had a terrible mental block about going into a store making cold calls. <laughs> My dad grew up in the Depression, mm-hmm. and one of his jobs was selling encyclopedias door to door. He had no car, had to hitchhike from town to town. Wow. And he dealt with a lot of rejection. Sure. And I inherited that. <laughs> the, the salesman was somewhere below dirt <laughs> in, in the pecking order. So that was a terrible thing for me to overcome. I'd have to walk around the block a couple times, work up my nerve to go in. Wow. But um, I don't know. You just ask for the manager and say, hey, this is my honey? Yeah, something like that. And they had fewer people in the stores. You go in there now, there's any number of people that can give you the okay, and sometimes the manager's the last guy you want to talk to. Yeah, and most people in the stores know that the manager doesn't want to talk to you, so they're going to direct you to anybody else before you can get to a manager. I had some trouble in one of the stores. They kicked out my best-selling item. These guys from corporate come around, and they got strange ideas. But anyway, I talked to the manager about getting this item back in, and he said, no, we're going with what we got well i was in the you go in the standing room and they check you in i was talking to the lady in there and i was bemoaning the fact that i lost this item and she says not to worry i can fix this for you <laughs> <laughs> so she just just made a little tag and we put it back on the shelf huh but uh, uh my personality doesn't fit with sales although i did it for years and years you know, if I could go in those stores and stock the shelf and not say a word to anybody, I'd be happy. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't work. you got to go in and talk to people. And I hesitate to use the term suck up. But you got to make some kind of connection there. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow I managed to do it because after I quit doing this and had somebody else on it, you know, they would still inquire about how I was doing. Oh, that's cool. So, um Somehow I made this work, but I'm really glad now that I'm I'm out of that. Yeah. But uh, once in a while, if we get desperate, I'll ma- I'll make a delivery run. Sure. So that sounds like quite a high of of being able to sell to uh to a chain of of. Do oh, you- and you go in there and somebody says yes, and you're like yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I can't imagine that first that first yes you got at a high V or fairway. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd been in there a couple times before uh, with no success. But then the guy that was selling honey in there, something happened to him. I, I don't know what it was, but I was in there getting groceries one time because it was up in Grinnell. And I noticed the space was getting empty, so I went in and talked to the guy and said, fill her up. So that was that was our start. That's then, cool. That's awesome. And then I was working for Snyder National Carriers there in Des Moines. I was a diesel mechanic in their shop there. And uh, I realized I was driving by all these grocery stores, or I was at least in the neighborhood. I was working nights. So I'd load up the car and leave home about 12, 30, 1 o'clock, because I had to be to work at 4.30. And uh, so I started selling these stores in Des Moines. Huh. And so I, I did that before work, but then it got to be too many stores to do before work, and then I was putting the day into it. And... See, and then that changed everything. Now I'm putting extra miles on the vehicle. You know, I'm putting extra time into this. So then I had to raise the price, which just scared the pants off me. Yeah. Because, like I say, in those days, you had to be low dollar or close. Right. Oh, 
If we're low dollar now, it's by accident. It's because somebody raised the price before we did. Yeah. There's a price point I have to hit. Yeah. Because it's 200 miles around that loop round trip. And we're running that two or three times a week. So we got to move a lot of product to make that come out, you know. And, and people don't always think about the wear and tear in the vehicle, right. you know, the time that you spent. And the guy that's delivering now makes a lot more money than I ever thought about paying myself. <laughs> so overhead has become much more significant than it used to be. Sure. It used to be me and a couple of sons. You know, our overhead was nothing. Right. Relatively speaking, now we've got, what did I say? We've got seven, eight, nine employees. Wow. And they're not all full-time. i got one, two, three, three full-timers and a handful of part-timers. But uh, it's... It's quite uh, a business. You seem, as you said, uh, accidentally grown. Yeah, and part of it scares the pants off me. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've got a small time mentality, but we don't have a small time business anymore. Yeah. yeah. And so you make these adjustments and it has taken several. I'm not retired, but I don't do what I used to. And it's taken several people to replace me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, same with dad. He's we're finding that out. It takes a couple of people to do what he was doing in his 50s. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, now we got a payroll person. We got a lawyer. We got a marketing person who we hired away from High V, which scares me to death because I didn't think we were paying that kind of money. Yeah. And uh, but so far I've been impressed with her. So we'll see. Uh, but it's different, you know. And now you got to figure your margin different. And uh, we cannot produce enough honey to fill our market, so we have to buy honey. Well, price of honey jumped sixty seconds. 60 cents a pound last fall. Wow. So now I had this huge price jump. And, and why, that, why did it jump? Just because the cost of everything went up or just because everyone inter, went the up? The U.S. International Trade Board determined that various foreign countries were dumping honey into the U.S. at below cost. <clears throat> you could buy honey out of India for 80 cents a pound. Wow. And this has been a problem going on for years. So Sioux Honey Association, American Honey Producers, brought suit against them. And I belong to American Honey Producers. They have lawyers in Washington, and we have spent a boatload of money on this, uh, getting this through. But anyway, finally, this U.S. International Trade Board says they're dumping honey. So now the Department of Commerce is obligated to um, monitor these imports. And all these foreign countries are dumping honey in here at below cost. <clears throat> if you're a guy with 10,000 colonies and selling your honey in the barrel, you need to get between 2 and $3 a pound to be viable business-wise. Uh, we were buying honey for $1.60 to $1.80, and we were paying top market prices. Well, last year I contracted at two thirty-nine and thought it was just terrible high. Well, honey's bringing a lot more than that now. Hmm. So we're looking at potentially another big price increase in the fall. Now, crop in the upper Midwest was really short last year. Yeah. And, and this has driven honey prices up in the short term. If there's any kind of crop at all, I think prices will probably fall back. But uh, it remains to be seen. And we had a horrible year here, honey year. We had to buy way more honey 
than we have in the past, which put us in a bit of a financial bind. Mm-hmm. But um, now, now, when you have to buy honey, do you try and source as close to where you are? Yep. Okay. Yep. And so, do you buy from one big place, or do you buy a bunch from several different small places, or both? Both. Um, there's a guy up here at Perry, Randy Brodenberg. He's got like five thousand colonies. Wow. We probably bought two hundred barrels from him. Wow. I still got some up there, which I got to go get next week. It's the end of it. Uh, there's some guys up at Postville. Uh, they're Orthodox Jews. I spent time in Israel, and after I dealt with them for a couple of years, I tried out my Hebrew on them. They thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, but uh, they produce maybe around 40, 50 barrels, and I okay. probably bought their honey for five or six years. And then Lance Bremen down here by Pella, he got out. But he was really rolling there for a while, and we used to buy 20 to 40 barrels from him. Wow. And then uh, there's other guys around that got a few barrels of honey. So we try to buy it in Iowa. Sure. Yeah. In years when the crop is short, uh, we've gone to Minnesota, we've gone to North Dakota, we've gone to Nebraska. I try not to use that in the store honey. Hmm. We have a lot of bulk business where we're selling honey to other beekeepers in buckets, and some of them will take it in barrels. We sell to uh, a number of breweries. Okay. Oh. Uh, I was surprised at the amount of miscellaneous business we got. The guy in the Newton paper did a little story on us, and he wanted to know about the places where we sold honey outside of grocery stores. And, boy, there was about 30 places. Wow. Where do, how do these places hear about you? Uh, my son had a marketing campaign that went to these breweries a few years ago, and I thought, boy, that's never going to fly. <laughs> well, it was rather successful. Huh. So uh, there's a guy up at Cascade. What's he do? I think maybe he does hard slider or something. But anyway, he buys a few barrels. Uh, there's this bootleg guy over in Davenport who, if you're listening, we'd need that bill paid. <laughs> um, yeah, I've turned into the bill collector lately. Um, who else? Uh, Jarsma down in Pella. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. By oh, a yeah. significant yeah, amount. Absolutely. I mean, they ship out. They also ship out all over the place. I knew people in Dallas that would order boxes from them every couple of months. Yeah, yeah. No, they're they're a big deal. Yeah. And uh, I'm on my, my third third go-round of managers down there now. I started in down there when, when Howard and Ralph were still, still really? in Really? They were the original, right? Or maybe their parents? I, I, I'm guessing they were second generation. Second, okay. Yeah. But... I don't know how old Howard was when he retired, but he was getting up there. And uh, Ralph was around longer. But anyway, then Dave Balk took it over, and now they've got uh, a large couple. Yeah, Dave's, Dave's daughter that took it over? Was she his daughter? I don't know. I don't know. I, th- I thought they kept it a family business. If, if, well, I, been... I know it's family somehow. I don't yeah. know what the connection is, but her name is Lisa Larson. My, and uh, my grandpa tells a great story about some Yarsma lore. So my my grandfather, he was born and raised in, in this area. In fact, he just moved out of the house that he was born in. He was sleeping in the room where he was born 84 years ago. And uh, um, he was friends probably with either Howard or Ralph in high school. And uh, he said, 
on occasion, it'd be the night before, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd be getting stuff ready to go the night before to have it fresh and ready in the morning. And uh, the their parents would let them come in and get some uh, sweet rolls or something <laughs> fresh out of oh, the man. fresh out of the oven. They just you know give them a pan of them and they just found her on those for for a half an hour or something like that. But yeah, Yarsma is a special special place if you are ever in this neck of the woods. If if you're by Pella, Iowa, it is a traditionally Dutch baked goodies and then plus some extra things. And uh, it's fun. Everyone that works there has to dress like like a, a Dutchman from like the 1700s. And uh, it's just a cool place. Yeah, it is. It's a cool place. And, and delicious. If I you're mean. trying to look them up, it's J-A-A-R-S-M-A, Yarsma. So that, that's really interesting, though, that you provide them honey. Now, when you said you try not to get um, honey that's sourced from another state, we'll say, or, or I imagine you probably almost can, kind of like what we do with our prairie ecotypes here where we can almost you know separate different parts of the country into regions known as ecotypes um is that because of the idea that i've heard repeated so many times and it makes some sense to me but i also could see it being maybe a little over exaggerated or something like that the idea that you want to eat local as local of honey as possible because it helps you deal with uh, you know, pollen allergens when your body is, you know, exposed to those proteins, you kind of build up a tolerance <clears throat> for, for different local pollens that might affect, you know, cause an allergic reaction during seasonal allergy time of year or something like that. Is, is that, is that a true thing that you know of, or is that something that's, that's been fairly true? Yeah. Okay. You need pollen or honey from the same floral type as what you have in your area. Sure. So if you're getting something from far off wherever, you don't really know for sure. Right. Uh, to some extent, you can tell by the case, taste. Sweet clover is very identifiable, and so mm-hmm. is sunflower. Really? So you can tell. You can taste some honey and know what they've been pollinating on for some of them. Uh, I think this here is probably, from the color, I'm guessing this got some basswood in it. Man, okay. that's crazy. It will, it will have a real minty tang to it. Okay, and it can be overpowering because sometimes we've had basswood really strong. You just take the lid off the barrel, and that smell hits you and just kind of knocks you back. <laughs> oh man! So we we mix it with something to tone it down, and it's it's excellent as long as it's not too powerful. Sure. And I send this to a guy in Florida. It costs one hundred and five dollars a bucket to ship a bucket of this to Florida. <laughs> But he, he sells it at some farmer's market down there. I send him a bucket every month, and he loves it. And when I don't have basswood, he's he's not the happiest guy. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's not something we get every year. And from this area, this this come from Postville. Okay. But um, they've logged most of the river bottoms around here, and most of the basswood trees are gone. Wow. Yeah. And we haven't gotten any basswood honey from our area since 2012. Wow. Yeah, I I did this. Um, so my family owns a farm, another part of the state, and we have this big block of timber on this farm. And I had a DNR forester come out and give me a timber management plan. They, you know, it was a really cool deal. If you're living in Iowa, and you need to manage a block of timber on your property, it's a free service that the DNR will well free your tax dollars pay for it. Uh, that that uh, the DNR will provide for you. And when she did that. 
she uh, got really excited when she came across a basswood tree. And she said, that right there, that, is, that tree is great for bees. That is a good pollinator tree. And this was a 40-acre block of timber, the only basswood tree Man. in that entire block of timber. And like, like Phil was saying, it was river bottom ground. And, uh, you know, previous owners from generations before, most likely, had cut the other ones down at some point, and that was the only one surviving. So, yeah, yeah if you got some uh, American basswood trees on your property encourage them to stick around you know it'd be a great a great youtube video is you blindfolded and you've got a bunch of different jars of honey that have different um things they were pollinated with and see if you could figure out which ones they were just by tasting them i think that'd be really cool to watch i can't always tell can't always tell something that's got a lot of sweet clover in it i can tell because it's got kind of a i don't know it's got a little bite to it Mm. not unpleasant and basswood i can tell but a lot of this stuff, you know, it's a blend of mm-hmm. stuff that the bees accumulate over the summer. And while it's got a specific taste, uh, attributing it to just one flower, you can't do it. Yeah. What What, what about like like wild, like a mix of wildflowers like we have here on the farm? What, uh, what kind of honey does that produce? Generally, something a little darker. Okay. That's what I was going to say. Is there... Uh, I've noticed that before. It seems like there's a real dark honey that you you can find in the store, which made me wonder, you know, is there a seasonal side to honey where, you know, there there's a sweet spot, no pun intended, in the year when you really want to buy honey during that time because that, you know, this, this, and this would have been in bloom and those just produce the best tasting honey. Is Is, is there anything to that? Generally speaking, the deeper you go into the year, the darker the honey gets. Okay. Uh, buckwheat produces a really dark honey with a very distinct taste, which reminds me of sorghum. Okay. And some mm-hmm. people don't like it. Sometimes we have it. Nobody grows buckwheat around here, but I know a guy down in Missouri that uh, uh, has access to some buckwheat that's planted on some Amish farms. Okay. And... Um, we set up a vendor table down at the Missouri meeting most of the time, and that's where I see him. And if he's got any buckwheat honey, I'll buy a few buckets of it. Sure. Um, it's kind of a unique thing. Um, if you get in an area that's got leafy spurge, which is kind of a slow-growing low growing shrub thing, that'll produce a darker honey. We got a yard on Doc Van Campen's over there, just this side of Montezuma, and we got a couple barrels of honey out of there one year that looked like root beer. Mm, and that's it, cool and it came early in the year was okay. it good i i didn't care for it <laughs> uh, stores want a product that's fairly consistent sure mm. so we don't separate this stuff we can tell to some extent we number the barrels when we extract them and most of the people i buy from number the barrels so as we get later into the year we watch it or into the higher numbers sometimes it doesn't matter but sometimes toward the end you'll get stuff that's darker and then we'll make an effort to blend that with the barrels with the lower numbers so we have it's it's not all going to be the same yeah but we try to 
stay in the neighborhood, so to speak, flavor wise. And what's your favorite kind of? I honey? was going to ask that. No, I like I like sweet clover. You like sweet clover? Yeah, I like this stuff that's growing out here along the road. But there's not that much of it around anymore. Mm. Uh, the Dutch clover that grows in the yards that people try and kill that makes great honey. Really? Is that yeah. the little white? The little the white ground? stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't keep many bees around my place. I got three colonies sitting there now and a couple of nuke boxes. But, and it's been too dry here to have Dutch clover. But in years when it blooms, I mow around it till it goes to seed. And uh, uh, then when we get a year with a lot of rain, why that, that seed will germinate. Because sometimes it'll come up just, just solid. Hmm. And yeah. then, then, then I, when I mow it off after it goes to seed, you know, I got a brown spot there, but I, <laughs> I don't care. My yard's natural selection, stuff that people kill. Yeah. I let it grow. Yeah. You know, we got Spanish needles, we got Dutch clover. Oh, yeah. We got honeysuckle bushes coming up everywhere. That's cool. uh, what else have I got? I can't even remember now. There's a little there's Carolina a little prairie notes. clover that comes up in there, the purple prairie clover with the skinny oh, skinny yeah. heads well, on you're, it. You're off on a gravel road. I mean, you do have a couple neighbors, but but not too much. We were just with um, Taylor Keen uh, from Sacred Seed, and he grows corn, squash, sunflowers, and beans in his backyard. And he said the sunflowers get 16 feet tall, and then they droop down. Uh, and he's like in a neighborhood, I'm pretty sure. You know, just <laughs> north, you know, area. <laughs> people can definitely notice he's not mowing their lawns. But does your your lawn get a little hairy during the summer? <clears throat> one time, uh, now that I don't work quite as hard, I keep the lawn mowed once in a while. But one year I was given a dry, guy directions to get to my place, and he says, oh, yeah, is that the place where nobody lives? <laughs> you know, the yard was, the grass was probably a foot tall. <laughs> And there was all kinds of stuff growing up in there, which looked fine to me. Yeah. But, you know, uh, to my Dutch neighbors that mow their yard when it gets, you know, a an, an uh, half inch above normal, why, uh, you know, it looks normal. Uh, my neighbors to East Reading, they, they let that clover grow up. They'll mow around it now. Hmm. But, yeah. Uh, well, you, you've, talked about, you've talked about yards, you know, people mowing their yards. You've talked about uh, pesticides and insecticides. You've talked about different kinds of trees that aren't there. If you could snap your finger and one thing changed about how we handle agriculture or our land to help bees, what, what's the one thing you would change? Oh, we need prairie strips or some kind of pollinator plots. Mm. I mean, my number one flower for bees is sweet clover. Okay. But it's got a short, well, it has a long blooming period. It'll probably last three or four, maybe even five weeks if it keeps raining and more of it comes up. But um, you need something through the season. And this is our problem. Because we, when we started keeping bees, God, it's been over 40 years, we hardly ever fed them. We didn't think it paid to feed them. You know, mm. if something was light, we'd stack it up on something else. Now the syrup tanker comes to my place. Mm. And uh, we fill up these big poly tanks and barrels of syrup, and we have to feed the daylights out of these bees in the spring. Mm. You know, particularly a spring like we just had, yeah. where April and May were just horrible. They could hardly get out of the box. It was cold. It was cold, and it, it was wet. Yeah. And um, we do nukes for the USDA up in Ames. They were three weeks late maturing just because of the weather. Mm. And um, and then in the fall, usually we got to feed them again because – we did catch a fall flow last year in some of our yards, but it's pretty much disappeared most years. Mm. Wow. 
We do have some yards near some prairie restoration areas where there is some goldenrod. But some years they won't work it. Last year they did. And you can tell, goldenrod, that's that's another honey I can identify. Mm-hmm. And it really smells when the bees are on it. Do you know what kind of goldenrod? Because we've got a huge field of stiff goldenrod out on the corner there. And I know you've got bees somewhere out there. I don't know how productive that is. Okay. And I don't know what, I know there's a lot of different varieties of yeah. goldenrod. And this stuff that grows, what I say, wild, uh, which it's not, it's bad, but it's got the, those long yellow heads on it. Mm-hmm. And last year, the fall was really dry, and you could see the color in that head for probably a couple of weeks before it opened up. But then when it opened up, the bees went to town on it. Hmm. And I think somehow maybe the blooming delay or the water content in the soil, because when plants are stressed, they produce more nectar in general. Rain just kills nectar production. Yeah. And while we need some rain, we don't need too much. Like now, we need about a half inch of rain to give those soybeans another growth spurt. Mm -hmm. The nectar from soybeans doesn't come from the bloom. It's extruded from the stems. Really? Mm. Bees hang out on the stems? Yeah, it's weird. And I I had bees for years before I before I found this out. And but some years we get a lot of soybean honey. And I most of my yards that's all they got now cuz cuz June is the b- month of maximum bloom. You got your sweet clover coming on, you got your trefoil, you got your woodland bloom, wild raspberries, wild strawberries, that kind of stuff that blooms mm-hmm. usually the last week of May and the first week of June. Hmm. And sometimes we get a good flow in that time frame. This year we got nothing. And I was extremely nervous because until I get that box, first box filled up, I'm not going to make expenses. Yeah. So sometime after the 4th fourth of July, things kind of kicked in this year. And uh, the last hot week, the last few days haven't been that good. But I could really tell the difference. I got these little new I, – I, I don't see hardly any of these yards anymore. You know, we got that one across the river there at Jansen that I play with. Mm-hmm. Um, I come down here and look at these. Uh, we got another yard up there at Hackert's there on the way to Sully. That I, I was in there for the first time last week. Mm. Uh, the boys are pretty much taking care of this stuff now. And I, I see the ones, the, the ones I see are the lame ones, <laughs> which makes me even more nervous. Right, right. <laughs> But uh, I could really tell a difference. Even these little nuke box in that last week. You what do you see mean it. by nuke box? Oh, it's just a small starter colony. It's a little box about eight inches wide, and it's okay. got five frames in it. And we sell a bunch of them for starter colonies in the spring. But then we keep a bunch of them around through the summer. When we start bringing the, the honey in, there's a lot of loose bees in there. So we put this inside, and the bees start coming out. So I got a box a little nuke box outside to catch the bees that are flying outside. And then I put another one inside the building to catch all the bees that are flying Hmm. inside the building. And you just need a little frame of root in there with a queen. And it'll track those bees and it keeps them from trashing the inside of your building or forming clusters up in the corners. And uh, so we can catch most of the bees and then these nuke boxes fill up and we take them out and put another one in. And we also use them to requeen colonies because sometimes you won't find these queenless colonies until the bees have dwindled down quite a bit so if we've got a nuke with five frames of bees we can stick that in the box and it can recover relatively we won't make a crop on it but hopefully we'll have a colony that'll build up good enough to go to california if you've got 
because you're giving great information. If, if if we've got someone, let's say, you know, they're maybe my age and they've got a yard and they got a little bit of pollinator in that yard or they got a few acres and they say, hey, I want I want a few bee boxes. Where would you direct them to learn how to do that? There are a number of bee classes around the state. I used to teach one up at the college in Marshalltown, but I quit when I started having heart trouble. Um, I don't know where they all are now. Um, Andy Joseph, who's a state apiarist, teaches one in Des Moines. That's a really good class. Some of the other people that teach these classes I wonder about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I used to, the last couple of years I taught, initially I tried to teach the basics of beekeeping before I brought up varroa mites. Mm-hmm. Last couple of years I taught, I went in the first class, I told them, you're more of a mite killer than you are a beekeeper if you want those bees to live. Mm-hmm. And we started talking about varroa mites in the first class. Wow. And we started working in the basics of bee behavior later on. But Andy's got a good class. And there are other good ones around. Yeah. Uh, Neil Reinhardt is teaching a short course. It only, I think, lasts one or two weeks up at the college in Marshalltown. I don't know what he presents. Um, but the Iowa Honey Producers has a website. And most of these classes start in January or February. Ron Weir's got one over there in Washington. He's a reliable guy. Okay. And uh, he teaches at the Kirkwood branch there. I think he's still doing it. Uh, I dragged him into this probably 10 or 15 years ago. (laughs) But I quit, and he's still doing it. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, on this uh, website, the Iowa Interviews website, uh, starting in uh, December or January, they will have a list of the places that are having beekeeping classes. Very good. And uh, you can go on there and find something. As far as buying equipment, I usually got a lot of used equipment around that I'm happy to sell. We sell packages and nukes in the spring. Um, package bees used to be a big deal for us. We we were selling around 3,000 packages every year. Wow. But then everybody started selling package bees, and I had a load that got cooked and lost mm-hmm. data answers the customer. and. Uh, our piece of the pie kept shrinking, and the risk of package bees is extremely high. Sure. Wow. And so we sell maybe two or 300 packages now, which we buy from somebody else. Yeah, sure. It's just that we have, we have enough people that want them. I feel like we've got to handle some, but it's, it's not the deal it once was. Sure. Yeah. And there's, <coughs> there's one weekend we have package bees, and that's it. So sure. and it's it's financially it's uh, doesn't amount to much. Yeah. More of a pain in the behind than anything else. Another another thing you were you just mentioned uh, before Nick asked asked this other question was getting the bees ready for California. Can you explain what you mean by sending bees to California? First of all, you got to get rid of the lame ones. You got to send good ones out to get good ones back, and even if you send good ones you're still going to lose 10, 15, 20% of what you wow. send out. And they'll look great when and, they go on the and, truck. And can you explain why you got to send them out there to California? <clears throat> it got extremely difficult to keep them alive here. We were ahead of the curve for years. We recognized early on that varroa mites were our problem. Mm-hmm. And they were relatively easy to control. 
And even though I always talked about it, people were slow on the uptake with this, and all these bees were dying, and our bees were basically alive, and we had plenty to make up our death loss and still had bees to sell, and great. Mm -hmm. And then these mites got harder and harder to kill. And <clears throat> we had, gee, a couple of really bad winters. And then the third winter come along, and the bees looked terrible. And what are we going to do? And we had an opportunity to go to California at the last minute. So we loaded these crappy-looking bees up on a truck and held our breath and sent them off to California. And somehow it worked. Hmm. And uh, they start brooding up out there in January. But you got to get rid of the bad ones. You got to... They prefer you got your name stenciled on the boxes. Um, what else? And you got to feed them up so they got enough feed out there. Oh, goodness. Missed my nap. <laughs> um, anyway, but basically it's getting, sorting out the good colonies, getting them fed, and getting them on a truck and get them out there. Mm. And then we got to send a crew out in January to go through them. Okay. Yeah, sort do, out the dead ones. Do you guys ones. transport them, or do you hire somebody? God, we hire that. I worked on semis for 30 years. I know what they can cost. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is own one of the darn yeah, things. Yeah. Right. Right. So we hire that. Cost $8,000 a load to get them out there. Fuel prices went up. Cost $9,000 a load to get them home. Wow. Times Times three. Oh, man. And then we're paying for four guys out there in January. Adam goes out in February to check them and feed them one last time. Because they run out of feed, they're going to die. Right. And you can pay pay people to do this, but I'm kind of a control freak. Right. <laughs> and also, we haven't been doing this. This is only the fourth or fifth year. It's still exciting for the boys to go out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so then the last two years, we've sent another crew out there in March to split them. Because coming out of the almonds are good. And... We've had enough dead ones, we've had empty equipment, and then we've hauled more stuff out there. But they made 750 splits out there in the spring. And then we let them set out there, and they hit 90-degree temperatures, I mean, which is great for bees. By the time they got back here, they were ready to split again. Wow. They made so many splits out there, they had to get down to Red Bluff and buy some more pallets wow. just to get everything back here. So if you want a good deal on some pallets, I, I got some for sale. <laughs> <laughs> but. Man. Uh, so are you are you guys collecting honey from the bees while they're out there no. in California? No. Okay. So other beekeepers are basically renting your bees is what's happening. Other almond growers. Almond. We do go through another beekeeper, and we're up there in northern California with the extreme northern end of the pollen ground. Mm -hmm. So we're not in the craziness that's down there around Fresno and Bakersfield yeah. okay. where you see semi-loads of bees stacked up everywhere. And this guy we worked with loads and unloads for us. We don't get top dollar, but he unloads and loads for us, lets us use the equipment. You look at our website, you know, you see pictures of these trucks and swingers and stuff. Mm -hmm. None of that's ours. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God none of it's ours. Your marketing lady is going to have a cow who hears this. <laughs> but it, it looked like we're wheeler dealers. Yeah. Sure. But we got a, we got a pickup out there, or maybe one flatbed, and then you see these other trucks and this guy's swinger. 
but uh, he's been great for us to work with. That's awesome. And uh, that's kind of where we're at on this. So, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just part of controlling overhead. But going to California, you automatically, your overhead goes crazy. Oh, I'm sure. And then you think about what it costs to keep four guys out there for sure. a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. So so I'm still curious about the honey. I imagine the bees are still producing quite a bit of honey while they're out there. There's, there's no honey off of almonds. Oh, I just, I just really? found this okay. out. There's no honey off of almonds still pet with fall. Oh, okay. And sometimes you got to get so, them out of there right so away. So bees are already out of there by then. So yeah. ours were in there long enough. I think they did gain a little last year. I don't remember. Why don't the beekeepers out there just keep their own bees in the almond? There's not enough. There's uh, something like... I think maybe there's 2.4 million colonies of bees in the United States right now. Takes a couple million of them for almond pollination. Wow. There is a mass migration. Now, honey prices came up, and some of the guys in Florida didn't go because if they make a box of honey in Florida, they save all that transportation expense. I mean, it's a lot. And then they're either sending guys to California to work their bees or they're paying somebody $20 a colony to do it. I mean, you're talking 50 hours of driving for them to get from California to... It's generally 30, 36. Really? That's it? Because if, if, almost... if, if, if it's a team truck. Oh. But yeah, if, if it's a single driver, which sometimes... They, they stop at night sometimes yeah. if it's one guy. And yeah, you're looking at 50 hours. Yeah. Man, I that is so crazy. So, so it takes... Over half of all bees in the United States, or or, or bee colonies, bee takes like eighty percent of them. That is crazy, just to do the almond trees in California. And I used to live in California. I saw those trees, and they those fields stretch forever. The curve mm. of the earth hits before you see the end of those trees. See, and now you got water problems out there. Oh yeah. So how are they going to irrigate all these almonds? Probably the older orchards are going to get pulled out. Mm. So. But there's still new plantings coming on. So in the short term, almond pollination is going to go on. What the long-term future is going to be, I don't know. Yeah. We've got a good partnership. Um, but I, I, I don't know. We might wind up wintering bees in Iowa again sometime down yeah. the road or going to Texas or something. That was the other thing we looked at was going to Texas. And Roger Bailey was a big beekeeper in Nebraska, North Dakota, and he's a friend of mine. I dealt with him for years, and he kept telling me, Phil, you got to go to Texas. You got to go to Texas. So I flew down there one summer, and of course, he knows everybody down there. And he took me around and introduced me to people, and we looked at sites. And uh, God, it looked great. They got all kinds of stuff that blooms down there in the fall. Yeah. You can take your bees down there, they can build up, you can split them, you can do whatever. And some guys go to Texas get their bees built back up, and then send them to California. Huh. More trucking bills, more overhead. Yeah. you got to have really high numbers. And that was what queered me on going to Texas, is our numbers were not high enough, and we did not have the facilities on this end to handle that kind of numbers or the manpower to do it. Sure. And I was unwilling to make that risk. What kind of, uh, what kind of numbers are you talking? Are you talking 10,000 colonies or... I've seen guys doing it for a thousand. I, to me, if you got a place to stay down there, um, that's one thing. Oh, so if you can go with the bees, basically, it'd be better. Yeah, and and these guys that got these big numbers, some of them got places in Texas where they where they 
got some kind of living place. Uh, it's usually not very exotic. Uh, <laughs> I went down and spent some time with Gary Lamb years ago. They had a decent house. He'd been going down there for years. I don't know how many years. And over time, you know, you're able to accumulate this stuff and build this up. But you don't start with that. And I had no infrastructure down there. I mean, you got to have syrup tanks yeah. and all that. And it was it was just a step too far. Yeah. If you, you go with somebody, then that's a whole different deal. Sure. And there's all kinds of ways to do stuff. And typical guy, I'm resistant to change. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I look at this stuff and... I worry about partnerships. Yeah. Uh, they start out great, but sometimes they go to hell too. Yeah. So I, I didn't want to be in a position where I was totally relying on somebody else. There's great guys down there that you can work with. Yeah. But Texas is getting crowded too. Sure. And basically if you want something decent, and they're on top of each other. So if you want something decent, you probably have to buy somebody out. I... I'm not inclined to go that route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but things change down the road. Opportunities come up, and what the future holds, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's an adventure. But I can tell you, this is a scary way to make a living. Yeah, yeah. I bet. And, and and not unlike what you're doing, <laughs> <laughs> we're relying on Mother Nature, who is a fickle master. Oh yeah. man, we are relying on people seeing that conservation is a big deal, and Mother Nature. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and you'd mentioned, we actually, we're, we're going to start wrapping up here, but you, several times you've mentioned the future here down the line. You're 80. I can't believe it. First, you don't look 80. Uh, you don't talk 80, and you don't act 80. Um, but uh, what is down there? You My body on? feels 80. It feels. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you're, you're, as, you're sharper than me, and I, I'm only 24. I, I, yeah, so, uh, but what's down the... What's down the line for you in terms of, are you planning on retiring here anytime soon? Like no. Adam and Alex? No, no. you're going to hang on. Keep going. I'm going to do stuff. Well, I commented earlier, I've turned into bill collector. <laughs> <laughs> I need to spend about half my working day sitting down. Okay. And then I can go for a couple hours. I can bottle honey. And then usually after everybody goes home, I find something to do for a couple hours. So basically I work in spurts. Mm -hmm. Okay. And <clears throat> we have multiple phone numbers. All those calls come to me. Mm. We're gradually going to transfer that to the marketing person when she learns the lingo and gets a little further yeah. acquainted with things. Uh, part of me hates to let that go because I have relationships with a lot of these customers. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these beekeepers, they like to talk. There's some like me that are not real social. But you get them on bees, you know. Oh, yeah. They'll talk forever. Sure. And so you just ask them, how are your bees doing? Did you get any rain? <laughs> you know, and they're good for an hour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quite often I have to cut them off because I do have other things to do. Yeah. Right. But, right. you know, you get to be friends with them. Yeah. And yeah. it's a big deal. And uh, uh, my whole social order and whatever is built around the business sure and if i did that i would have very little personal contact mm. and um wouldn't be a good deal yeah mentally yeah 
And, you know, dealing with these people, too, even when it's unpleasant, it keeps the wheels turning up here in the yeah. head. And yeah. that's a big deal. You know, sometimes I see these farmers move to town and they're dead six months later. Yeah. Um, you know, I still look forward to getting up every day. Yeah. Even yeah. though it's painful getting out of bed some mornings. Yeah. You got a lot of years of getting up still. I'm I hope so. You. Yeah. Yeah. 35, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if i want to last that long you know i i want to be able to function mm. and i have a friend beekeeping friend who's 86 wow. and he got into his 60s he says phil you know i think maybe i ought to ease up maybe i ought to quit well he got into his 70s he says phil i think i'm gonna quit <laughs> <laughs> well he, he's 86 now and he told me last spring phil I'm going to keep going as long as I can. (laughs) (laughs) He's still got 25 colonies. He's got an acreage that's several acres. You know, there's a lot of mowing. And he says, I'm just thankful I can still mow. Wow. But, you know, he's limited. But he still had a couple hundred colonies until he was 80 working by himself. Wow. That is a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. And he's kind of a frail-looking guy. What do you think keeps all of you beekeepers so healthy? You think it's all the honey? I think it's mental. Huh. I mean, you're always looking ahead, wondering what's going to happen. Are you going to be able to deal with what happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because this is, a lot of beekeeping is responding to the way the bees look. They don't look the same to everybody. Yeah. And these people that are successful generally understand what to do when things look the way they look or when... You don't always know what the conditions are because a lot of times conditions look good out there. Stuff will be blooming and you think, God, this is great. Temperature looks good. It's hot and dry. Nothing's happening. Mm. So You think it's a mental fortitude that you It's the mental up. thing that your, your head's working all the time. Huh. And, of course, there are physical limitations mm-hmm. uh, that happen that uh, in, limit what you can do. Yeah. But... Uh, I, I think it's having a healthy mental outlook. Yeah. And there's always a worst-case scenario, which I always try to plan for, which yeah. is the downside of this. But, you know, you got to keep the wheels turning in your head. Well, I mean, just talking to you, you obviously have kept them turning, and you are doing a great job. It's, it's really cool to hear from you, and I, I am sure all of our listeners will really enjoy what you have to say. I think it's important, too, to... You know, as you hear all this, you hear the there's a lot of extremes here. The the deal with the mites, the deal with the the pesticides, the deal with having to ship bees to winter in different places, but they can't stay there because there's not enough food for them year round, so they got to be shipped back. The death of all the queens and having having to constantly replace them. There's there's so many hurdles to beekeeping, and start, you start to kind of think to yourself. Why do these people keep doing it? But <laughs> we I don't know any better. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But sure, I am thankful that you do. And, yeah. And as Nick was alluding to earlier, so much of what we eat is directly dependent upon the presence of pollinators on on the landscape. And uh, you guys are doing what it takes to to keep them going. And you know, we talk about it all the time, Nick. There's a common thread of optimism that, yeah, we're kind of in a hard time right now, but hopefully it's going to get better. And those of us in our different 
corners of conservation that are battling it out in the trenches. We're hoping that tomorrow is going to be a little bit better than today and we can get things back to where they should be. And hopefully uh, that means more bees that can hanging out on more wildflower and prairie. Hanging out on more wildflower and more prairie. Yeah. Well, I will say I've never failed to be energized by looking in these boxes. And on some days when I get to feeling really bad, I go out and look at some bees Mm. and it never fails to make me feel better. Mm. So in closing, I I always think about Satchel Paige. Um, Don't look back. Somebody might be gaining on you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's a good way to say it. Do you, if, if people are hearing this and they've never heard of you before, and they really want to connect with you. Maybe not you personally, but but Ebert Honey or want to look for some of your Where can they go? Is there a place online they can find you or what's the best way? EbertHoney.com. EbertHoney.com. And I've seen, definitely seen you guys on Instagram, Ebert Honey, and they've got a killer Instagram. And that's been awesome. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. I don't have <laughs> anything to do with it. And they tell me sometimes when I need to look at it. Yeah. yeah. And people were telling me happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Happy birthday to you from yeah. Hoxie Native Seeds and the Prairie Farm Podcast. <laughs> Man. Yeah. It truly has been a pleasure. And and everyone, if you are looking into getting bees, I we do, as we've talked about, it is super important that they have a, th- they have a place to have pollinator. And if you're looking for that, feel free to go to the website, theprairiefarm.com. We've got pollinator mixes. Um, and we are here for the pollinator and conservation because conservation happens one yard at a time.